Hi, this is Alan Ruff, the Thursday host of A Public Affair. If you have a moment and uh, the resources, remember to support the station. And if you will, head over to wrtfm.org to donate and to see what else is going on at the station. Six foot six above sea level. I grab my mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. And good afternoon. Welcome to this, a special Winter Pledge Drive edition of A Public Affair. I'm your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff. Before we get to our guests today, we have some housekeeping to do. That is to keep this house going. WORT here at uh, one, you know, South Bedford Street coming live to you, our listeners. What, how many years now? 40, 45 years? With me in the studio is Matt Rothschild, the regular contributor, periodic guest, and so on. And uh, Matt, I got to ask, you know, first of all, thanks for coming in to help with this pledge drive. But why you? Why do you support WRT? Well, thanks, Al. For, and it's good to see you. It's nice to be on. And uh, for the listener, uh, please donate if you're listening in your kitchen or in your car or in your office. 608-256-2001, extension 1, wordfm.org. We'll take your pledge. There are people here, kind people taking your pledge. I, you know, I love WRT. Uh, one thing that I think really stands out over the last several months anyway is uh, the coverage of what's been going on in Gaza. I mean, you've been doing a terrific job, Alan, on this show. Of course, Amy Goodman and Democracy Now! have been doing a terrific job covering it, too. You really can't find uh, any other place that is giving this kind of information actual factual information not biased toward the u.s position or the israeli position uh, anywhere else on the dial or on, on uh, mainstream tv and so i think word has proved itself to be indispensable over the last several months in that respect of course you know i love rock and john uh, you know tony Castaneda's thursday morning show i love brian standing eight o'clock Buzz on Monday mornings, I like a lot. Frank's reggae show on the weekend, I like a lot. Uh, Mel and Floyd, you know, it's it's so comfortable for me. It's so reassuring to me as someone who's lived in Madison uh, for the last, or around Madison for the last 40 years, to come back into range of WORT when I'm driving back, whether it's from Chicago or whether it's from up north or whether it's on a long road trip like me and my wife did last uh, fall. And just to know that, you know, Wart's still there, Madison's still there, Wart's a huge part of this community here. And so I, I, I'm hoping the listener right now will uh, call 256-2001 and make a pledge or pledge at wartfm.org if you feel the same way. Thank you, Matt. Yeah, give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 1, to give a pledge, a donation to Keep on keeping on, W-O-R-T. We all already uh, have Harry Richardson to thank for his donation. We have Martha, uh, who donated to Hajira right at the end of the last show. Uh, so please call and make your pledge if you haven't pledged for a while or even if you're just a first-time pledger. Uh, give Alan a salute uh, for the great work he's been doing. How many years have you been doing this show, Alan? Oh, I, I've lost track. It's over 20. It's been a while. <laughs> a, lot, uh, a lot of Thursday mornings, Thursday <laughs> afternoons. Absolutely. If you like what Alan's been doing, dial up 256-2001, <laughs> extension 1. In keeping with one of the stated missions of the station, to provide alternative perspectives on important issues facing us all, I thought it only appropriate to turn our attention once again this hour to the Israeli war on Gaza and beyond. Joining us today is Jennifer Lowenstein. For years, a periodic guest on a Public Affair and other spots on Wart. Jennifer is a former faculty associate in Middle East Studies at the UW-Madison and has been a decades-long close critical observer of developments in Palestine, Israel, and the broader Middle East. Jennifer Lowenstein, uh, welcome to WRT. Hi, thanks for having me on, and I do hope people will pledge to WRT. It's a great radio station, and I miss it every day. Jennifer's talking to us from Tucson, and we, we miss you on, on often enough, Jennifer, So, but keep on doing the work you do. Jennifer Lonestein, based on your daily reading of, of numerous sources, I, I'm, I'm amazed what you 
send out every day. Might we begin with you, some kind of overall assessment of the current situation? Um, it's hard to give an overall system, assessment that isn't very depressing. Um, you know, I don't think this is just Israel's war on Gaza. I think it's Israel's and the United States's war on Gaza because uh, Joe Biden is supporting it. Um, it with every possible means. He's arming it, he's funding it, and he won't say anything to stop some of the most brutal policies being carried out. Um, and I think that's something everybody should be aware of um, so that they will get out and protest uh, uh, for Palestinian rights, but also against what the United States and Israel are doing. Talk specifically in regard to what is currently taking place on the ground in Gaza. I know you, uh, you've had uh, direct links, friendships, uh, associations with folks in Rafa, which happens to be uh, part of the equation of the Madison Rafa Sister City Project. Give us some sense of what's going on on the ground from what you can gather. Well, when I read the the messages that I'm getting from uh, in particular, a friend in Rafa, um, you know, they they sound increasingly despondent, um, demoralized. I think people in the States have a difficult time imagining what it's like to wake up in the hallway of your home and step over bodies, you know, sleeping bodies, because you know, to give people an idea, people in Rafa are sleeping in the hallways of their homes because they're so afraid of the bombings, not necessarily of being directly hit, but of the blowout from, from bombs that causes all of the windows to shatter. So they've got almost every home in Rafa now has 30 plus people living in it because of the 1.4 million people who were displaced from the north and then central Gaza. You, you wake up in the hallway of your home, you have to step over bodies of children to get to your kitchen. When you get to your kitchen, there's no electricity. Um, you have, uh, in this case, she has an older son who has to walk a number of kilometers to get a jug of water that is extremely heavy. The water is not clean but it's cleaner than the salt water from the from the taps, which is now absolutely poison. You have poisonous. You have to carry that back to the home. That's what you're going to use for the next week, if not longer, for your cooking, for your washing, for anything else that you need water for. Um, you're lucky if you have a bag of rice or lentils. Uh, to live on. You get one hot meal a day, and most of that food is going to children because, of course, they need it more. Um, the children are now playing games such as uh, displacement, uh, living in tents, being bombed. That's the children's game. Who is going to be bombed today? And they make make-believe tents in the homes. It's, it's just terrible. Um, they wake up at night from nightmares. There's increased bedwetting. Um, children very often won't leave the sides of, of their parent or an adult in the room. Um, playing outside, of course, is dangerous because you don't know where a bomb is going to hit. Um, the person I know in Rafa was a witness just about... Uh, two weeks ago to a bomb that fell on the house two, two, store, two doors down from her where everybody died, including a two-year-old boy and a two-month-old baby. I mean, this is your daily life, and you don't, see, uh, you don't see any light in the future. You don't, you don't, you're losing all hope because there's, there's none to be given. Um, that's what I'm getting. Mm-hmm. In a uh, recent uh, Amnesty International uh, statement uh, released on Monday, um, in its description of the severity of conditions in Gaza, Amnesty described the current situation as an engineered human humanitarian disaster. Uh, That what is taking place as we speak 
is, uh, again, AI's term, an engineered famine. Talk about how this is playing out, the uh, deliberate denial of humanitarian aid. I think what people need to understand is that when you deliberately deny people humanitarian aid, as well as water, fuel, electricity, and medical supplies, you have engineered a slow-motion genocide. Um, I was curious to hear the BBC reporter say that the death toll is 25,000 when every other major organization, uh, UN organization, international organization, is saying 30,000. The Ministry of Health numbers in, in Gaza have been deemed... Uh, accurate, not only by these other UN organizations, but by Israel, which also uses the quote-unquote Hamas-run Ministry of Health figures. Um, So there's a lot of uh, hypocrisy and doublespeak going on here. But I think what's really important, and I'll say this again, is that when you deliberately deprive people of these basic needs for now going on five months you have engineered a slow-motion genocide, and that is what's taking place on the ground. We're, we're listening to Jennifer Lowenstein on, on the Internet with us live from Tucson. We're talking about, of course, uh, the crisis that is Gaza, the humanitarian crisis that is Gaza. Um, again, give us a call at 608-256-2001. Um, <clears throat> I mean, where else do you hear this uh, on the ground kind of perspective? Here, Jennifer uh, telling us what a friend in Rafa is dealing with and what that friend's family is dealing with, what that friend's children are dealing with. Uh, this is the kind of information, uh, the kind of observation, the kind of insight that you really don't get uh, on any other radio station here in, in Madison and probably not many places around the country. Uh, unless they're playing Amy Goodman in Democracy Now!, which WRT also does. So if you want to support the station, if you want to support Alan's show here every Thursday noon, 608-256-2001, extension 1, or you can donate online, wardfm.org. We have to raise, say, some fifteen, sixteen hundred dollars $1,600 this hour. So kick in what you can. Uh, give us a call again at 608 256 2001 extension one i want to continue with jennifer because well it's a packed hour <clears throat> and it's a crucial subject jennifer the that same amnesty uh, international report that i referred to earlier uh, pointed out something that is often unstated in the mainstream press it's almost it's invisible really and that is that the current horrific situation comes on the heels of a 16 year long block illegal blockade of Gaza, that Israel's actions have served to exponentially intensify what had already become an ongoing humanitarian humanitarian disaster well before October 7th? Well, I think it's important for people to, to hear that, but I, I should add that, you know, I lived in Gaza before Hamas was elected to power, and it was blockaded then. So it's 16 years that we've had a formal blockade of Gaza. And of course, now with this war, I mean, it's hermetically sealed. Nothing is getting in or out uh, without Israeli approval. Um, But pre-2006, 2007, when Hamas came to power in the Gaza Strip, Gaza was also blockaded. Uh, It wasn't quite as rigorous as it as it was during the 16 years in which they were in power before this war, but it was very bad. I remember stores being empty of food back in 2002 and 2001, uh, you know, and I remember the difficulty of getting in and out of Gaza. And I remember, for example, during the Second Intifada, that people in the Gaza Strip couldn't leave the Gaza Strip. Um, and without special permission. And so I, I think people have to understand that this has been going on for a lot longer than 16 years. It's been going on probably for longer than 50 years, but you know, you can go back 
you know, till 1948. It's been bad since then. Com- compounding this uh, humanitarian crisis well underway, there's the looming threat of a full-scale ground assault on Rafa, Madison's sister city in, in southern Gaza, as I mentioned before. Can you talk further about, you know, and take the, excuse me, talk a little bit further about what your your connections there are saying in, ter- in terms of the impending attack? Yeah, actually, I, I asked my friend directly if she had any plans um, if the Israelis invade Rafah, and it looks as if they will. Um, and she said, when I asked her, she said she had no plans to leave. She was too exhausted, and her children were too exhausted. Now, I know that they live in an area that is very much on the edge of Rafah, um, so they're at least not centrally located. But when you're talking about, you're talking about a city that used to have about 280,000 people living there. And it was crowded. You know, you'd walk the main street and, you know, push your way through people. I don't think most people can begin to imagine adding 1.4 million people to that equation. And many of those people, while most of those people are now living in tent cities around Rafa. Many of them are also sleeping in the streets without tents. And Hudia, my friend, says that when you walk outside her her house and head towards the main street of the city, you're basically walking over people, through people, around people. And the other thing that people don't really grasp here because they have no experience of it is that Gaza was you know, derelict was, you know, destroyed before this. The The sewage system doesn't work, didn't work very well. Um, I remember heavy rains in January of 2004 where I was walking through ankle-deep water. Now, imagine that now you're walking through sludge, which includes human sewage and rainwater, This rainwater is also pouring into the tents in the tent cities. People are living in sewage. And when that happens, you have the spread of infectious diseases. So that, for example, two weeks ago, the UN had recorded 700,000 cases of infectious disease. That was two weeks ago. We're now seeing hepatitis A. We're seeing... Uh, gastrointestinal diseases, you know, tuberculosis. is. I mean, it's just, it's unspeakable what, what people are living in there. And as I said before, they don't feel hope. What, as my friend wrote to me, what do people think when, uh, when and if a ceasefire ever happens? Not that they don't want it. Of course, they want it to be permanent. But that's not the end. Once there's a cease, where are people going to go? 70% of all homes have been destroyed. All of the universities have been destroyed. Most individual businesses have been destroyed. Most of the schools are, are, have been destroyed. The medical infrastructure is gone. You know, this is a place that the Israelis have made uninhabitable. And to go a step further, they have also destroyed the farmland around Gaza. It's poisoned. It's poisoned by white phosphorus. It was poisoned in the past with depleted uranium shells. It's, you know, do you want to eat food that's planted in this kind of soil? This is what we're talking about. It's been made uninhabitable. And yet, 2.4 million people live there. I still believe that Israel will force uh, many people out of Gaza into Egypt. And there's evidence that Egypt is building uh, detention camps for people outside of the Rafah crossing in Egypt, which is, you know, disconcerting to say the least. Egypt doesn't want that. Egypt, by the way, has actually at one point threatened to pull out of the Camp David Peace Accords of 1979 if Israel pushes the people of Gaza into the Sinai. I don't know how serious a threat that is, 
But these are the kinds of, of things that we have to face uh, in, for the future, for the near future of the Gaza Strip. 608-256-2001, extension 1. Give us a call. There's phone answers sitting patiently in the lobby. stack of pledges just came in. We're glad to see, but we need you, your support, to keep <clears throat> this kind of coverage uh, going on a regular basis. Now, think about it. Where else are you going to get this kind of uh, firsthand account of someone who knows Rafa well uh, and the cr- continuing the mounting crisis in, in, the, in that part of the Gaza Strip? Yeah, you're listening to Alan Ruff. He's the host of A Public Affair every Thursday. He's been doing this show for two decades or more. He's interviewing Jennifer Lowenstein today, who used to live in Madison. Jennifer Allen and I uh, once uh, protested, just the three of us, outside Temple Bethel after uh, Israel's uh, um, assault on the second intifada, I think it was, though my timing may be a little off there. So uh, we've been uh, focusing on this issue for some time. Now, if you've been appreciating this conversation that Alan has been having with Jennifer and Jennifer's uh, insights on what's going on uh, in Gaza uh, at the, on the ground floor, please uh, take a second now uh, to pick up the phone and dial 256-2001 and, and make your pledge or go online at wardfm.org and show your appreciation for this uh, kind of conversation, as Alan says, that you will not hear anywhere else uh, on the dial in Madison and not many other places uh, in the media infrastructure around the country. We have three pledgers I want to acknowledge and thank. Richard, uh, I thank him. He says, a public affair with Alan. He uh, he enjoys a lot. He's been enjoying our conversation uh, this noon. David P., uh, likes uh, uh, a public affair on Thursdays, the news programming, the diversity of music. Hi, David. Old friend. Used to play basketball with David P. Uh, Steve Wolzen calls in, likes a public affair and, and musica antigua. Um, please do as David has done and Steve has done and Richard has done and, and make your pledge. 256-2001. Jennifer, through much of the uh, coverage here in the States especially, there's a constant focus on Benjamin Netanyahu. He's been portrayed by some as the responsible one leading, uh, leading Israel's ruling right-wing coalition. It's clear now that the far right in, in, Isra- in Israel has capitalized on the Hamas attacks of October 7th to push uh, for a long-time goal of, of eth- to ethnically cleanse what they see as greater Israel. Talk about that. Uh, a week ago, you mentioned um, that Netanyahu, in, in, <coughs> excuse me again, Netanyahu in, unveiled what has been described as a post-war plan for Gaza. Have you had a chance to examine what that might contain? <laughs> no, and I, I doubt that I'll ever even bother looking at it because I can imagine. I wanted to say, you know, first to Matt, I remember that protest where Alan and you and I were outside of Temple Bethel. We were there in 2001 after Ariel Sharon was elected prime minister. And I think this leads into exactly what you're asking, Alan, because as much as there has been attention focused on the right-wing nature of the current Netanyahu government. And yes, it is horrible. The policies that have been in place on Gaza uh, long predate that. And, and Ariel Sharon wasn't the beginning either. So I think it's, it's, you know, it's important for people to understand, you know, sadly, and I, and I say this with, with real sadness, 90% of the Israeli Jewish public supports the war on Gaza. That is very disconcerting to me to think that 90% of the Israeli Jewish public basically backs this war or, in essence, backs this genocide. Yeah, um, Is, Israeli, Israeli policies have been fairly consistent. They have been gradually getting worse and worse over the decades. But, you know, I remember being in Beirut in the late 90s when Avigdor Lieberman of the Knesset wanted to bomb the power grid in Beirut. And he is he's now not part of the extremists. So, you know, this has been a long, slow process. 
It's suffocating the Palestinians. It's isolating them. You know, I, I hesitate to use comparisons of the Nazi Holocaust, but if you read Raoul Hilberg's classic book on the Holocaust, you see some of the same policies being implemented that need to isolate, surround, and control certain populations. You know, Baruch Kimmerling and a number of other Israelis long referred to the Gaza Strip not only as the world's largest open-air prison, but as the world's largest concentration camp. I don't think that is an exaggeration by any stretch of the imagination. These policies have been in place for a very long time, and they have popular support, not just the support of the right wing. 608-256-2001, extension 1. Call with a pledge to allow us, enable us to bring voices like Jennifer Lowenstein on the air. As Matt said early in the hour, you're not going to get this kind of discussion, conversation, uh, at some level rather in- intimate, anywhere else really on, in, on the um, U.S. radio dial or TV for that matter. Again, 608-256-2001. Uh, extension one. Jennifer, talk, talk about, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm going to shift the focus a little bit here. Talk about developments uh, on Israel's northern border with Lebanon uh, to the back and forth simmering confrontation with Hezbollah, often portrayed in the mainstream as, well, you know, as a surrogate or proxy of Iran. What's, what's your sense? You've been to Lebanon, I know. What's your sense of that? Well, I've, I've lived in South Beirut, and South Beirut is where the slums are. That's where the Palestinian refugee camps are. But it's also where Dahia and Harit Harik are. Those are the two Hezbollah districts. That's where Hezbollah is located. Now, Hezbollah is definitely allied with Iran, but to, to think of it as nothing more than an arm of Iran is mistaken. It's very independent. Uh, I know people in Hezbollah. It's it's a political party. You have to understand, you know, people, Hezbollah is, is a feature of daily life there. It's everywhere you go. It controls institutions. It has charity, charitable organizations. Hezbollah is known for having driven the Israelis out of South Lebanon uh, in the in 2000. I remember being down at the Lebanese-Israel border in the summer of 2000, after Hezbollah drove out the Israelis. And, you know, you can look into Israel from there. It's, I think people maybe don't realize how close they are, how geographically connected northern Israel and, and southern Lebanon are. One of the most disturbing reports that I read recently, yesterday in fact, was that Um, there is now talk of an Israeli invasion of South Lebanon uh, because Hezbollah will not agree to the terms Israel is demanding for a general, for a temporary ceasefire. Uh, One of those conditions is that Hezbollah withdraw north past the Latani River so that Israelis living in northern Israel are secure and are not being bombed. Well, Hezbollah is refusing to do this. They're not going to leave their own territory. Uh, They're not going to withdraw on the command of Israel. Hezbollah has grown into a fairly formidable military power. It's been, its restraint, in my view, has been absolutely remarkable because you've had dozens of Lebanese civilians killed now in South Lebanon as a result of Israeli fire over the border. Uh, You've also had had Hezbollah commanders and uh, soldiers killed. Um, Hezbollah, I think the leadership clearly knows that that the population of Lebanon, which is now suffering terribly because of the economic disaster in in Lebanon, the last thing they need is a war uh, where Beirut is destroyed the way Gaza is. So that's one reason for Hezbollah's restraint. But will this continue? You know, will this restraint continue? You know, 
I don't know. The smallest uh, overreach by Israel could trigger a much more uh, dangerous scenario. And reading about a potential uh, Israeli invasion is, is very unnerving, to say the least. Again, 608-256-2001. We've, we had a few more pledges coming in, donations to WORT. Matt, what do you, what do you have there? Yeah, uh, Ronald uh, donates. He likes uh, Alan's a public affair. He likes book reviews. He likes jazz. Thank you, Ronald. Uh, Dexter uh, also uh, likes a public affair with Alan. Uh, thank you, Dexter. And Kevin likes Mellon Floyd as well. Uh, thank you, Kevin. Uh, be like Kevin and Dexter and Ronald and, and pick up the phone and call 256-2001, extension 1, uh, and make your pledge if you haven't pledged yet during this pledge drive. Uh, if you uh, appreciate the uh, information and insight that Alan gives you every week and that Alan's been giving you today with Jennifer Lowenstein, uh, information and insight you can't really find elsewhere, uh, now's the time. Uh, you know, stop what you're doing, take 30 seconds, dial 256-2001, extension 1, make your pledge, or go online, wardfm.org, and support the station, support the incredible show that Alan does week in and week out. Matt, as as Jennifer was talking in the last round, I, I could see you uh, nodding your head some, and, and I got the impression that you wanted to make a comment on... on well, I scribble notes all the time, I'm a little student still, but... Uh, you know, I was struck by one of the early comments that you made, Jennifer, when you called this not just Israel's war against Gaza, but Israel and Biden's war against uh, uh, Gaza. Um, why is Biden supporting uh, the Netanyahu government's uh, slow-motion genocide, as you put it? You know, I think it's partly political. I think he very much wants the Jewish vote. I also think that he realizes that right now the Democrats and the Republicans are fighting over the Jewish vote because the Republicans would like to claim it. So Biden is doing everything possible to look as if he's he's supporting Israel. He is supporting Israel. But I think that skirts the issue of Biden himself. And you can go back, you know, 30 years and listen to Biden talk about Israel. He's a true believer he is a diehard supporter of Zionism. He thinks it should be there. He said once not long ago that if Israel didn't exist, they would have to invent it. If Zionism didn't exist, they would have to invent it. He actually believes in what he's doing. And despite news reports that portray him as at odds or loggerheads with Netanyahu, you know, maybe there's you know no great love between them. The fact is, Biden supports this because he wants to. He supports Israel. And I am sure that he is also a racist based on some of the comments he has made, such as at the beginning of this war when he referred to the, the casualty tolls in Gaza as, as unreliable mm. because uh, that, they were Hamas numbers. I mean, comments like this on national television, international television, which immediately delegitimize not just the Hamas government, which is a government like every other. Hamas government is no different. Um, you know, you run around there and you meet people who are in the Hamas party who are, you know, they're not fanatics. They're just people who have a job. Um, you know, and that's hard for some people to imagine. And no, I'm not a Hamas supporter. I don't like its ideology at all. But, yeah, going back to Biden, he's a true believer. He's mm. doing this because uh, not only does it look good politically, but also because he believes in it. Talk about the diplomatic cover on the, on the international set stage in the U.N. and so on, this wielding of the U.S. Uh, veto in the Security Council, for instance, on, what, like three occasions now? Yeah, uh, well, and with each veto the condemnation of the United States internationally gets louder and stronger. So really what Biden is succeeding in doing is not only uh, watching Israel become a, a bona fide pariah state in the world, 
he's also moving the United States in that direction. People are angry. I remember listening to a Lebanese-American journalist on public television talk about his recent trip to the Middle East. He's been back and forth almost every other year for the last 40 years. He said never in his life had he witnessed the kind of anti-American sentiment in the Middle East that exists today. And that includes in the 2000s during the Iraq war. And I have to say, I've seen it myself. When I first started going to the Middle East, to Damascus, to Beirut, to Cairo, you know, people were always very welcoming of me as an American. The last time I was in Beirut in 2018, I experienced for the very first time the opposite, where people were not very happy to see an American. First of all, they identified you with Trump back in 2018. And now seeing what Biden is doing, again, I just have to emphasize how how angry people are, uh, not just in the Middle East even, but certainly in the Middle East where, you know, if nothing else, Biden has succeeded in making Americans less safe than they have been since 2003. That's 20 years, you know, and I was supposed to be in Beirut this December and I, I didn't go. And I didn't go for a number of reasons because it did look like uh, Hezbollah might get involved in a war, um, but also because of that sentiment. I have friends in Beirut saying, you know, people are not happy to see Americans anymore. And it's understandable. It's, it's understandable. Um, there was one other thing I just wanted to say when we were talking about South Lebanon. I don't think most people over there realize, first of all, how big the United States is, uh, how protected we are because we have two oceans on our borders. When you're in Lebanon or Syria or Iraq or Iran, you hear Israeli fighter planes. You see them overhead. They are violating airspace, international airspace. In Lebanon, they are breaking the sound barrier. I don't think I've ever been to Beirut without hearing Israeli jets fly over, a kind of in-your-face F.U. message that we're going to you know, invade your territory whether you like it or not. That's definitely true in Damascus as well. I mean, civilians have been killed in Syria, in Lebanon, in Iraq, and in Iran because Israel just bombs them when it wants to. I mean, you have a very, very belligerent neighbor uh, in your uh, in the west or in the south, depending on where you're located, if you if you live in the Middle East, Israel is not getting any popular with any more popular with this war. Of course, Jennifer, when you talk about jets flying overhead in, in Lebanon and so on, these days they're F-35s, the very same plane uh, that is here yes. in Madison's Truex Field. Um, we have a caller, I understand, uh, with a question or comment to come in. Hi, Ron, you're on the air. Uh, hi, Alan. Uh, thanks for the show. Uh, uh, first, I have a comment. Uh, uh, this is not the first time that people in Rafa have been subject to uh, Western uh, slaughters of their citizens. Under Napoleon, in about 1811 or so, uh, he rounded up a bunch of uh, about 14,000 prisoners of war in Rafa, and he murdered them all, killed them, shot them. And the excuse was, well, we can't take prisoners of war, we can't feed them, we can't deal with them, so we're just going to kill them all. So this is not the first time that a Western country has uh, behaved in an uh, absolutely uh, barbarous manner. But this is often forgotten uh, since Rafa uh, then receded into history thereafter, after Napoleon plundered it and so forth. Thanks, Ron. Uh, my second uh, item. <laughs> well, we we lost we lo lost Ron there. Sorry about that, Matt. You were going. You... 
Yeah, uh, you're listening to uh, A Public Affair with Alan Ruff. I'm Matt Rothschild, uh, just helping out here. And Alan's been having this fascinating and very disturbing interview with Jennifer Lowenstein about what's going on in Rafa uh, and uh, Gaza and the region with this slow-motion genocide that Joe Biden and Netanyahu are executing. We've got three uh, pledgers since the last time we interrupted. Uh, one is uh, Scott Benneke, who likes a public affair and is, Thanks, Scott. Uh, enjoys hearing Jennifer Lowenstein. We also have a, a donation from the Anonymous family, uh, one from uh, Kate Ryan, and another from Justin, so glad that the wisdom of Alan Ruff and Jennifer Lowenstein is still on the air, uh, says Justin. If you agree with Justin there, uh, and uh, as I do, please pick up the phone and call two five six two thousand one and make your pledge. I, I know who that Justin is, and he's calling. I, I forget where he's located now, but fire a field, Louisville, Kentucky. There you go. He, if he can pick up the phone f- from or go online to pledge to WRT from Louisville, you can do it from Dane County. So give us a call, uh, or you know, go online and pledge at uh, phone six zero eight. Two five six two thousand one <laughs> extension one or online ward fm dot org. You know, there's something I want to get to before we run out, out of time completely, and that is, uh, I want to get Jennifer your take on the uh, charges, constant charges now of anti-Semitism leveled against all all those voices uh, that may criticize um, that criticize Israel or Zionism. Uh, included among them, uh, of course, dissenting Jewish voices in groups like Not In Our Name and Jewish Voice for Peace, which has a chapter right here in Madison. Yeah, um, I'm a member of Jewish Voice for Peace down here in Tucson, Arizona. And uh, if anybody is interested in doing this, I suggest going to the ADL website and reading what the ADL says about Jewish Voice for Peace. The anti-defamation. It may your hair. The Anti-Defamation League, yes. You know, we're a bunch of lunatic radicals, according to them. But yes, I wanted to to say something about the charges of anti-Semitism. You know, I remember working and reporting with the um, journalist Robert Fisk in Beirut um, back over the years. And I remember once him just, you know, being so angry and saying when somebody accused him of being anti-Semitic, he basically said, you're making anti-Semitism respectable because people who are saying that starvation or bombing or closure or a part of these these things are wrong are basically being told they're anti-Semitic. Well, if it's anti-Semitic to stand up for universal human rights, for equal rights for Palestinians, for an end to an apartheid regime, for an end to carpet bombing of a, of a strip, well, you know, they're going to want to be anti-Semites because they believe that's right to stand up for universal rights, etc. Now, really, I'm speaking tongue-in-cheek, but there's some truth to that, to fling around the term anti-Semitism every single time, or anti-Semite, every time somebody criticizes Israeli policies is going to backfire. It's going to backfire on Israel. Um, And that is, I think, a very uh, sobering thing to have to consider. Um, Using anti-Semitism as a term is also in a a way to silence people. And people are starting to be very angry about this. They want to speak up. And they're tired of being afraid of of being accused of of anti-Semitism, and, and they're they're starting I... to see that it doesn't work anymore. I'm sorry, it's I interrupted. not anti-Semitic to do that. <laughs> yeah, Jennifer, I've interrupted you twice there, Matt Rothschild, jumping in here. Um, no problem. With a uh, just to, because the irony there also is that this uh, slow motion genocide, as you call it. Uh, by the Netanyahu government and by the Biden administration is actually a disaster for Jews. Uh, it's a disaster for Jews here in the United States and around the world, making Jews less safe, not only making Israel less safe long term. And I've never understood what the long term strategy here uh, 
of Israel uh, has been with this occupation and now this war, but it's fueling uh, hatred of Jews because people just identify Israel with Jews, and, and therefore anyone who's Jewish who may not even uh, be ascribing to the policies of the Israeli government uh, is viewed uh, in a very harsh light because of what the Israeli government's doing. Jennifer, yeah, we, I think that's go true. ahead. Well, no, I, I agree with that, and and I think that you know there are a lot of people who are, are are understanding, beginning to understand how dangerous it is. But every time I hear Netanyahu describe Israel as the state of the Jewish people, I want to wring his neck mm. because it's not my state. Right. I don't want anything to do with that state. I completely dissociate from it. Um, it's not my state at all, and I I just think that when he does that and he in, implies that its policies represent the Jewish people worldwide, yeah, that's pretty dangerous. Mm-hmm. 608-256-2001, extension 1. We have but a few more minutes uh, left, but give us a call or go online to WRT.org to pledge for this hour for the station to keep on keeping on. Station goes again. 24-7-365, and it's not possible without your assistance. Yeah, and I just want to give another plug for the work that Alan's been doing here, not just today, but week in and week out here on this show. If you're a listener to the show and you like what Alan does and the uh, uh, insights he provides, the observation, the homework he does, and then the excellent questions he asks of his guests and the good guests that he gets on the show, uh, I urge you just to pick up the phone now if you're in your kitchen or in your office, if you're, your car's parked. I'm not going to have you call while you're driving, but you know when you uh, pull into wherever you're going, uh, pick up the phone and call 256-2001 and pledge to WRT and thank Alan for all the work he's been doing here so we can have these kind of conversations here in Madison. And for those who aren't in Madison or are listening online anywhere in the country or around the world, this is important political conversation uh, that you don't get anywhere else. Much of my uh, information uh, about the situation in in the broader Middle East and certainly in regard to uh, this war uh, proceeding, this humanitarian disaster advancing uh, in Palestine, Israel, I get from Jennifer Lonstein. She's tireless uh, every day. I, in the morning, I open up my email folder, and there's downloads of articles so Based upon that that edu- self-education that you carry out day in, day out, uh, Jennifer, what do you see coming? What's your sense of what's coming? Uh, we blew by it, but I wanted to come back to s- a second to the fact that two weeks ago, you circulated a piece from Al Jazeera titled, Satellite Photos Show Egypt Building Gaza Wall as Israel's Rafa Push Looms. What do you, what do you know at this point? What, where do you, where do you think it's going to go? Uh, well, long term, it's it's very scary because we have to remember there's also a climate emergency on the planet and that, uh, you know, a war doesn't help. It just contributes to it. Um, and that's one of the big backdrops. I wanted to also mention that I read a piece not long ago that said the Gaza Strip looks different now from outer space than it did before October 7th because it has been so badly destroyed. That's really chilling to me to think of that, to, to be looking down from a satellite and seeing that, that, that the Gaza Strip actually looks like this grayish bit of land. I mean, the farmland is, is ruined, as I said earlier. It's really scary. Um, I think Israel's goal is very clear. It's greater Israel. It's to have all of the land without the people, the Palestinian people. That's where it's been heading for many decades. Uh, That's what we're seeing now uh, happening. Um, I think there's nothing Netanyahu and his cohorts would like better than to see the people of the Gaza Strip gone, dead, or displaced. Um, Obviously, there is... uh, global opposition to this, but I, you know, how, how many countries can stand up to the United States? I mean, that's why I said when, when these reports, and uh, you know, you can see pictures of the camps that Egypt is, be, is building outside of Rafah in Rafah, Egypt. Rafah, I should say, 
is a city both in the Gaza Strip and in Egypt. And in parts of Rafa, Egypt, there are these detention camps being built for, I think, 100,000 people each. You know, that's that's very scary. And the Israelis certainly don't want it. I mean, you know, the the Gaza, people of Gaza don't want to leave there. The, the Israelis want the, the population of Gaza out of Gaza. Um, but the rest the rest of the world is, is very angry. I think it's just going to increase the anti-Americanism. You know, when you have a threat by someone um, in Egypt saying that the, that the Camp David Accords of the peace treaty between Egypt and Israel is now threatened because Egypt is so angry with what Israel is doing. You know, as I said, I don't know how serious a threat that is, but that it should even be brought up uh, should give us pause. Um, I, I don't see anything good coming from this in the long term. And I can't imagine countries like Qatar and the UAE uh, are eager to go and rebuild Gaza because every time they pour billions of dollars into it, it gets destroyed again. Um, so it's very hard to see the future. You know, I'm going to have to let you go, Jennifer, because we got to head toward a wrap in this Pledge Drive edition of, of Public Affair. As always, um, I really like having you on because you, again, provide a perspective uh, and an analysis uh, and word portraits of what's really going on. So I want to thank you for your time and thank you, of course, for doing what you do. Goes double for me, too, Jennifer. It was fascinating. No, we got a couple minutes left, Matt. Why don't you run through the list of people who've already pledged? Yeah, I want to thank uh, Scott Benneke. I want to thank Kevin, Dexter, Ronald, Richard, David P., uh, Steve Wolzen, and Harry Richardson. Well, Please be like them and call 256-2001. If you've appreciated this uh, hour-long program on Gaza, more time uh, in more depth than you've heard on on the Israel war against Gaza than I bet you've heard anywhere else with the possible exception of Amy Goodman, who also appears on WORT. So if you want to support what WORT's been doing with this coverage of the Israeli war on Gaza and Alan Ruff's tremendous program today, and he's had other great programs on the war on Gaza since October 7th, please call right now, 256-2001, or pledge online, wardfm.org. We've got two more pledges here just handed to me. Uh, Daniel uh, and uh, Kate Hall, um, they both like a public affair and uh, want to support Ward. So we appreciate that. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Kate. And I hope you who've been listening for any part of this hour to Alan's discussion with Jennifer Lowenstein, who has lived in Gaza, lived in Rafa, lived in Beirut. Uh, please thank him and thank her by calling 256-2001 and donating to W. Well, of course, I also want to thank you, Matt Rothschild, uh, for your support. I, I want to thank Jack, our engineer, Jade, um, uh, <laughs> producer, and uh, I've been your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff, and I'll be speaking with you next week.